Good morning. Uh, our scripture reading this morning, as it says up there, is from Isaiah. Um, but I was asked this morning to extend the reading back to where we've been starting in the past few weeks. So it'll be on the same page, which is uh, 1072. But we'll be starting at uh, chapter 8, verse 19. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we open your word, open our hearts and open our ears to hear uh, the wisdom you are sending to us and be with our pastor as he um, lights these words up for us. Amen. So Isaiah 8, verse 19. When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and look upward and curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. <laughs> Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. <clears throat> you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoiced at harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. This passage, the context we're in, and why we asked Joel to read all the way back to 819 is, is setting the stage for a, a change of government in Israel. Uh, among the people of that time, they, they had been living under kings who, as we have talked about the last few weeks, who, who failed to lead them towards God. In fact, the kings of Israel had become corrupt during that time and, and were leading the people away from God. One of them, in fact, uh, just around this time of Isaiah's prophecy, uh, had closed the temple, had put 
walls around it and, and locked it up and, and instead built altars to all sorts of other gods all over the city, on the street corners and, and everywhere you can imagine. He erected uh, different uh, uh, worship places on the top of the hills and the mountains around there, the high places as they would call them. And, and was encouraging all of Israel to go seek these other gods. And, and when that wasn't working, he said, maybe I should pray to the gods of Damascus because the Damascus gods helped the Damascus people defeat me. So maybe I should turn my allegiance to them. And in the midst of this, Isaiah gives this prophecy of a child being born who's, who's going to make everything right, essentially, of, of going to change everything. When we hear those ideas of everything changing, there's usually two places we go. <laughs> One is we, we go back to the past. And we root ourselves in a, a nostalgia. If only we could get back to the way things used to be. Let's get back to how things were done. Let's get back to the way it's supposed to be done right. And we go back and we, we long for what was because what was made sense. And when what was happening, we, if we could just make sure it happened that way again, we comfort ourselves. We say, if we can do that again, we'll be okay. And the other place we go when there talks about a change of government or a change in leadership is, is almost to a utopia one day everything will be great and if you man, we've heard this I hear this in the states a lot right now as I listen to their political election if you just elect me we're going to make everything great it's going to be awesome it's going to be beyond what you've imagined it's, and we paint this idyllic picture as if everything's rosy and happy and suddenly just because the government changes everything like that is better and life's good for everybody and we live with these two tensions of, of a nostalgia and let's just get back to the things that the way they were when we understood them and they made sense or let's abandon everything and get to a place where everything's going to be good and flourishing and full of life and, and everybody will be happy. This text speaks into the middle of those two. And in some sense says, no, it's not that, and it's not that. In this short verse of 9, chapter 7, we get a glimpse of what God's going to be saying to the people in the rest of chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12. It's Isaiah saying in a very close nutshell, this is what I'm going to be expanding on. This is the direction God's going to be calling you. We have these two tensions, and, and certainly Israel felt those. If we just get back to the way things were, and, and we make sure that everything's pure and just and right, if we make sure the offerings happen the way they were supposed to happen, we'll be okay. Jeremiah, a little bit later than Isaiah, Jeremiah ends up confronting the people who went back to that temple version and they, they clung to the temple. In fact, they would say, the temple, the temple, the temple, as if the temple was there to save them. As if their security was in doing things the right way and their ability to make worship happen the way it's supposed to happen. As he confronts them on that, he says, your salvation isn't in the temple. In fact, it's all going to be taken away from you. 
because you're not acting justly. You're not seeking mercy. You're not trusting God. You're actually trusting your own worship and you're trusting the temple instead of God. Isaiah is speaking to the people and calling them to turn to the Lord. There's also what comes this utopia of we can make everything different, but in making everything different, the people are still chasing after their own ability to change things. And then we get this text, which draws them back. Uh, Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. It's talking about this little child who's going to be born. And as we talked about last week, it's, it's a dual horizon here. There is a, a likelihood that Isaiah was referring to the birth of Hezekiah, but it is even more than that, that Isaiah was speaking about the promised Messiah who would come one day and make everything new. So Isaiah is speaking to the people, but the Spirit is speaking through Isaiah to us as well. And as he's doing so, he's saying, of the, of the increase of his government and his peace, there will be no end. Two things in this passage. The, the government idea is probably, probably could be translated pretty well as empire. Of his empire, it's not just going to be a localized thing. This king who's coming, this prince of peace who's coming, is actually going to be one whose kingdom extends over everything. The outside threats that the people of Israel have constantly dealt with are going to be eliminated because the kingdom that is coming is one that's going to extend and encompass everywhere imaginable. You don't call an empire just the few little kilometers around your city. It's the whole world is in view. And the word for peace is is a loaded, loaded theological word in the Old Testament. It's shalom. That idea where everything has its place and everything is flourishing in its place and there's a common mutuality. It's not just the absence of outside threat. It's a fullness of life where there's an abundance of life together. People taking care of people, contributing to each other's well-being, contributing to the well-being of creation, all inside of honoring God for really being God. We made that profession together earlier. I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. I believe in God the Holy Spirit. It's that type of basis giving this shape to the shalom. Everything being rooted in who God is. So this kingdom that's coming is not rooted in humanity. It's not rooted in the the prowess of the next king or the next leader. This kingdom that's coming, this empire that's coming, is going to be rooted in the knowledge of who God is, of God's presence with his people. Because that's the only way the prophets understood shalom ever being able to happen. God among his people. He goes on from there, though, and he highlights in this, in this passage that it really is the promised Messiah that's coming. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it. He will reign on David's throne. So, so what Isaiah is doing is saying, there is a Messiah who's coming, a promised one. 
that promised one that you have been yearning for, when you, when you look back towards that nostalgia, and only if we could get back to the times of David and Solomon, if only we could get back to the way it was, it's the one who's promised to have that root. But it's the one who's coming. He's going to establish and uphold it for eternity. It's an ongoing kingdom. It's one that's, that, that goes beyond what you have imagined. He's pulling those two poles together. Yes, you need the looking back, but not by itself. Yes, you need the looking forward, but not by itself. These two are coming together in this promised Messiah. This Messiah is coming. But he says something interesting here. Not only is the promised Messiah coming, but he's coming to establish this kingdom and uphold it. He, Isaiah expands on this a couple chapters later, chapter 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. It's David's dad. Coming up out of David's line. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike, strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. It goes on to describe the kingdom that's coming and the reconciliation that ends up happening. But, but Isaiah is saying, this Messiah who's coming, he's going to have a different character than the kings that you have known. This promised one who's coming is going to be attentive to the needy, attentive to the poor. The kings that they had known and they had experienced definitely were not. They took advantage of the poor. They took advantage of anybody they could take advantage of. They tipped the scales constantly in their own favor. And here is a king, a king, Messiah, who's coming, who's not going to look out for himself, but going to look out for the needs of the most needy in the community, the most marginalized. He's going to be attentive to He does it in a certain way. He doesn't do it by simply taking from the rich and giving to the poor. <laughs> Listen to what he says. Uh, back to chapter 9. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Uh, justice and righteousness. Uh, Mishpat and Sadiq. Tzadikah, depending which one you're looking at. But they, they take, those words are also loaded, loaded words. And the idea with the one, the justice, is that, that it's God's intervention. God intervening when things are not right, when things are broken and, and dismantled. God's justice stepping in to make things whole again. It was actually, in the number of the Psalms, one of the things the, the kings were called to when these Psalms of coronation were sung over the new kings being installed, they were called to be kings of justice. 
not ones who accepted bribes, but ones who sought the Lord's way for all the people. This promised Messiah is going to work in such a way with justice that he's making right that which was wrong. And then righteousness, that that way of life that God describes, we encounter it somewhat in Psalm 1. That idea of, of walking with the Lord and meditating on the law of the Lord day and night, being a, a, a tree planted by streams of water which bears its fruit. It's, it's this fullness of life that comes from being in the way of the Lord as opposed to the way of the wicked. It says the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. The way of the wicked will perish or will come to an end. There is righteousness. There's righteousness in this coming Messiah. There's something interesting that gets picked up along the way in, in the description of God's people. You guys remember Boaz? Boaz who, who takes in Ruth and Naomi. Boaz who becomes the great-grandfather of David. Boaz. Boaz is depicted in Scripture as being a righteous man. Not kind of the 70s righteous dude. But, but a righteous man, someone who honored the ways of the Lord, who sought the good of everybody around him, even when it was costly to him. Went back and, and reread that story of Boaz and Ruth, and, and, and he's, he's describing at the end when he said, okay, I'm going to redeem you, but there's actually a kinsman redeemer who's closer, someone who has a right to, to come alongside you before I do. And so he goes to that person and he says, will you redeem all of this property? And the guy says, sure. And then Boaz says, and it also comes with Ruth, the Moabitess, and Naomi. And he's like, no, I can't put my own family's inheritance in danger. I can't put myself and my kids in danger. And Boaz says, then I will. There's a subtle transition there that, that the righteous person is someone who's willing to sacrifice themselves for the good of the people around them to make sure that the people are taken care of. It's that trajectory and literally that family line for the Messiah. Someone like a good shepherd as we've read through the litany this morning who will lay down his life for the sheep. It, righteous becomes the word that Luke picks up on a number of times in his gospel. He, he starts by talking about, uh, uh, talking about Zechariah and Elizabeth. You remember Zechariah and Elizabeth? Uh, they're a couple who have wanted kids for their whole life. They, they have lived to honor God, and it says they were both righteous in God's sight. In other words, the barrenness that Elizabeth was experiencing had nothing to do with the sin of her or or Zechariah. And in that culture, that's what it was interpreted as. Barrenness was seen to be some result of sin. And yet, the text goes out of its way to say, no, they were righteous, and her barrenness was allowed to be there so that God could work, work this miracle of John the Baptist being born. They were righteous. And then just after Jesus is born and he's brought to the temple, they encounter a guy named Simeon. And Simeon's in the temple and he's been assured by the Spirit that he will not die until he sees the Messiah. And in the description of Simeon, it says Simeon was righteous. 
He's one of these guys who's living into the righteousness that God's people are called to. He's living out this character of the Messiah. Perhaps the culmination of Luke using this word, he uses it multiple times, but he comes back to it at the end. Jesus is on the cross. And all sorts of things start happening as he dies. The earthquake and the, the cloud of darkness that, that covers the earth. And one of the centurions looks up and says, surely this was a righteous man. One who lays down his life. It's important for us to hear this characteristic. That what God is doing in this Messiah, this promised Messiah, is not to erect a new kingdom that's going to be dependent upon us. But it's a kingdom that's rooted in justice and righteousness. Someone who enters into the story of our brokenness, the cyclical nature that Israel was experiencing and the cyclical nature that we continue to experience today. Someone who would step in to make things right, who would take on that justice and yet be covered in righteousness in such a way that they would lay down their lives for the good of others. The salvation that God is promising through Isaiah is not going to be dependent upon the king, not on Hezekiah, not on anyone who comes after them. The text closes with this. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And God's jealousy for his people, God's spirit being upon his people in, in the Messiah is going to be what accomplishes this. This is the good news as we enter into this, this Christmas season, as we look forward to remembering Jesus' birth, that looking back. And, and as we look ahead to his second coming, that what God is at work doing in making all things new, including us, that what God is at work doing in, in taking the sin out of us, and that what God is work, at work doing in healing the wounds of other people's sins that have been done to us, and those things that we have experienced that go beyond any pointing of fingers to ourselves or to others, where it is simply the brokenness of the world we currently live in, all of that is overcome not by what we do, not by a, a new start or a fresh page or a New Year's resolution that some of us will be making. But it will be accomplished by the Spirit of the Lord working through the Messiah. In a moment, we're going to partake in this meal together. A meal that is full of nostalgia, of looking back, of remembering Christ's death and resurrection. But a meal that also looks ahead, counting on his ascension and on his return. That Christ not only came once, but he's coming back again. Christ not only laid down his life to make all things right between us and God, but, but he's coming back to restore us, to, that we too might live in that righteousness, that wholeness of life, that we too might experience the fullness of life that God has promised, that that kingdom that he was saying to the people of Israel, trust me, a day is coming when all things will be made new, that that hope is ours as well. This Christmas season is not just a nice memory about Jesus who came and was born. 
It is a renewal of hope, a deep-rooted assurance that even today, even now, Christ is at work making all things new, including us. Let's pray. Lord, we come to this time of year and we're aware that things need to change. Things in us, things in the world, we, we feel it. But we also know that we can't bring it about. We can't make it happen. We, we come back to the new year after new year with the same set of resolutions. We need you. We need you to step in and make everything new. We need you to, to make the whole world new and the way the government functions and the way the, the corporations function and the way our cities function and the way we function. We need you to make us new. Change our world. Change us by your Spirit. Grant us this morning as we taste the bread and the juice Grant us that deep-rooted assurance, that faith that believes that not only have you forgiven us of our sins, but that you are at work even now bringing about your justice, making all things right, enabling us and equipping us by your Spirit to live into that righteousness that you have promised, that you are at work bringing about. We need you, Holy Spirit. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.